We're going to be in Genesis 15. If you could flip there with us, I'll give you two seconds. Cool. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have, given, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man sh- will not be, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of Ur, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord, or Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years, and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To the offspring I give, you this, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Pray with me as I welcome Davy to the stage. Lord, we just come to you this day. God, willing to hear from your word. Lord, God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the word that you have for us um, today, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would speak through Davy this morning. Let his words not be his own, but be from you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. You guys can be seated. It's always good to be with you, church. Um, as, as Mark said and Mark read, um, we are going to continue our series uh, in the covenants this morning. Uh, if you guys have been with us over the last few months, um, one week of each month we are walking through um, a covenant uh, because covenants really do lay the backbone for the Christian faith and helping us understand where we've come from and ultimately where we're headed. I mean, we're going to dive right into uh, the text this morning uh, because if you kind of looked on the screen behind you, we're going from, seven, uh, from 12 to 17. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, yeah, I think it's also important to set some of the stage of where we've been that leads us ultimately to today, that leads us ultimately to Abraham and his family. If you were with us about a month ago, we walked through the Noahic Covenant. 
I'm a covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, saying that I will never destroy the earth again in its entirety. And every time we get to look at a rainbow today, it brings us back to that moment. It brings us back to that covenant with God. You see, Noah stepped in to kind of have this Adam-like role, to be the presence of God, to be the voice for God. Yet we also see in, in, in the Noahic covenant that, that Noah ends up failing. He ends up falling short. And so we're asking that question of who's going to be the one that God raises up to be the child of Eve to ultimately defeat the serpent. Because we know it's not Noah, because Noah failed. Noah lives and dies. And the story progresses and goes forward. Yet the reality is when Noah had that covenant, he was also told to step into the role of actually reproducing and creating humanity once again that had been wiped out. And so the story progresses, and more and more people are beginning to fill the earth. And we get to chapter 11 of Genesis, a story that many know, and I'm sure many kind of gloss over, and that's the Tower of Babel. You see, for it, it was at the Tower of Babel that creation ultimately said, you know, we want to make a name for ourselves. They said, let us come, build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest let we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Yet we see that God ultimately spoils that plan. He says, you're not going to make a name for yourself. I'm actually going to disperse you throughout the world. And you won't even speak the same language anymore. The diversity happens in that moment. And that ultimately sets the stage of, in a sense, a world fighting against God. And in the midst of that, God raises up one man. He raises up Abraham, who seemingly out of nowhere enters the scene. I mean, this morning, we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant through three kind of specific lenses. One, in chapter 12, we're going to look at the call of the covenant. We're going to follow that up by looking at the God of the covenant in 15, and lastly, looking at the sign of the covenant in chapter 17. So the call of the covenant. And it's important to know from the get-go that you're going to be reading text. I'm going to be speaking, and we're going to talk about Abram, and we're also going to talk about Abraham. That is the same person in the text today. We'll actually see that Abraham's name, or Abram's name is changed to Abraham. I'll be using the words uh, kind of both at the same time often, so just know it's the same person that we're speaking on. And so right off the bat, God calls up Abraham, and he ultimately gives him two commands. He gives him the command to go, and the commands to be. Verse 1 of chapters 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I show you. So God commands him to go. Yet he also follows up the command to go with three promises that he lays out for him. He says, You are to go, and through that I will make you into a great nation. It says, number two, I will bless you. And number three, I will make your name great. Which is an amazing thing that we have just prior to that in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where humanity says, we are going to make a name for ourselves. And then God says, no, that's not going to be the case. I'm actually going to raise up a man, and instead of him making a name for himself, I will be the one to make a name for him. 
And secondly, God says, all these things will happen so that you will be a blessing. Though it sounds passive, the command is to be a blessing to those they come in contact with. And once again, God follows that up with three promises. He says, I will bless those who bless you. Two, I will curse those that dishonor you. And he says, in you, all the families or all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's important to note that in these few verses, in these three verses, we see the word blessing used five times. And what's so distinct and important to note within that is, is prior to chapter 12, in verses 1 through 11, the story up to this point, the word curse is used five specific times. Five specific times from 1 to 11, God establishes a curse. And so we see in the blessing that God gives to Abraham, in these five distinct blessings, he's ultimately saying, you are going to be the one. It's through your line that we are going to reverse these curses. It is through you that we are going to begin again. This is a kind of new beginning that he gives to Abraham. And so how does Abraham respond to this command, to these promises? In verse 4, it says, So Abram went. Just the immediate response. There's no vacillation, no nothing. Just, so Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed to Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. It shows the simplicity of obedience in that moment, that Abraham listens to God and simply obeys. The reality is he left all that he knew to follow God, to follow his voice. We have to remember that in that day and age, family was everything. Oftentimes you would live with your parents really your whole life. You would just extend on to the current house that you had to build to make room for your wife and for your kids, and that just continued on and on and on. So by him stepping out in this moment, he really is getting rid of everything and saying, okay, God, I will follow you. And so he goes, and God reveals himself and confirms his calling. For God says, then the, or, then the Lord said, appeared to Abraham and said, to your, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God calls him out and points him and says, hey, all of this land will be yours. And then how does Abraham respond once again? Through obedience. And we actually see the thankfulness poured out through his life as well. Scripture says, so then he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. 
Abraham's response is one of obedience. And actually the building of an altar ultimately shows his, his thankfulness and his praise that he extends to God. It's a sign of adoration and trust. And so it's important to note within these first nine verses in Genesis 12, there are really two promises, two distinct promises that God reveals that are tangible elements of his blessing. And that's offspring and land. Because the reality is to have a great nation, to have a nation whatsoever, there has to be people that are within that nation. And so God is saying, I will produce offspring for you who will produce offspring to the 10th degree to make this nation great. And he also reveals that land is going to be super important because to be a nation, you have to have boundaries. You have to have an area which is the nation of fill in the blank. And so he's saying, I will give you offspring and I will give you land. And we'll see that this, these two themes carry throughout the rest of our text today as well as carry throughout the whole Old Testament. And so this call on Abraham's life ultimately lays out the foundation for the covenant. So what do we learn about this foundation? What do we learn about the covenant through the life of Abraham? It's important to note that within those first promises that he gives, we realize that we as followers of Jesus, we will be dishonored. We will be cursed by people. It's inevitable. You see, God in this moment, he doesn't say, hey, Abram, if somebody dishonors you or if somebody curses you, then I'm going to dishonor them or I'm going to curse them. But no, he just says matter-of-factly, when someone dishonors you, I will curse them. And so we need to note and not shy away from the moments in which we feel cursed or we feel dishonored by the world around us but rather realize that this is a reality as a follower of Christ. So maybe you're here today feeling persecuted, feeling dishonored, feeling cursed. Maybe you feel dishonored because you view and value the sanctity of life, and you don't fit within a world that is totally okay with millions of babies being killed every year. Or maybe you feel cursed because you hold a biblical view of marriage and gender. Maybe you feel persecuted because simply by being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, you are viewed as a bigot. You're viewed as closed-minded. Yet I urge you to take comfort that from the establishment of the people of Israel, from the establishment of the people of God, dishonoring and cursing is something we are going to experience. And you see, even Jesus in the midst of this conversation, we see in Matthew that he tells his disciples as they're going, he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It is the reality that we see in the Old Testament. It's the reality that carries through to the New Testament and to the church. So I urge you to stand firm in the gospel to stand firm in the truth that the word of God present. Please don't shy away from speaking truth, but rather realize that in the midst of dishonoring, in the midst of cursing, we still have the opportunity to proclaim 
the words of God, to proclaim truth. Take comfort in that. And also realize that though so often in these moments we feel like we need to just defend ourselves or to debate and debate, to debate and to debate some more about these issues, which I think sometimes these are issues that we need to discuss and to debate about, but also realize that at the end of the day, we don't have to be the ones to get the last word. Because this cursing ultimately is handled by God in the end. When judgment day comes, God is the one that gets the final word for all of creation. Yet it's still the call that in the midst of a culture where truth is relative and therefore always changing, we need to stay firm to the truth that is embedded in the word of God. And secondly, through Abraham, we just see that obedience is the appropriate response to the word of God. Abraham is told to go and be a blessing. And that immediate response is obedience. He listens and obeys. So the question is, are, are we, as followers of Jesus, actually listening and obeying? Or, or do we have selective hearing? Do we act like God is our mom or dad, and when growing up, for some reason, we never hear them when they tell us to clean our room or to take out the trash or to mow the lawn? Yet we somehow always end up hearing when it's dinner time when we can have friends over, and when they say we could have a little extra cash. Is that how we go to God of just saying, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick and choose what I hear and then obey that? Yeah, I think for many of us, it's not as much the selective hearing that we feel like we struggle with, but we would say we just struggle with actually hearing the voice of God. Within my line of work, I get a lot of interactions with people, and that is one common question I get, which is how do, how do I grow in hearing the word of God? How do I grow in hearing God speak? And I think in the grand scheme of things, that's an amazing question to ask. It's an important question to ask. It's a question that we as followers of Jesus should be asking. Yet so often, my response to that question is one that people don't really like. Yet it's still true. Because I say, right here, we have the word of God. You want to hear God speak you want to hear the word of the Lord, get into the pages of scripture. You see, we are given the very word of God. And in today's day and age, we have more access to scripture than anybody has ever had before us. I mean, you can have it printed, you can have it electronic, you can have it in probably 30, 40 different versions. We can get it in the original Greek, the original Hebrew. Regardless of what language you speak, realistically, you can get it, or it is being currently made into that language. We need to spend time in the word of God. We want to hear from God, and I urge you to read your Bibles. We cannot get a clearer message from God than the very words of God. And it is his words that say, this is what is helpful for teaching, for educating, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. This is where we go to hear God speak. So the call is to listen to the word of God and then obey. I mean, what if we actually read this book 
And then when God said do something, we actually did it. Like in a grand scheme of things, this idea of be a blessing would be so easily lived out if we actually followed the word of God and obeyed. And so I urge you if, you, if you are in those moments, and I've been in those moments before too, where I want to hear the word of God. Before I got kind of new agey, and like, I need to go into the forest to hear God. Realize that you have the word of God in a printed copy, or everybody's got a cell phone with them these days. You've got it in your pocket. So listen and obey the word of God. And that's the call God gives to Abraham. And then from that moment, from 12 kind of on, we get just rapid fire of stories that go from 12 through the end of 14. We don't have time to completely unpack it, but just kind of a, a flyover. As soon as God gives him this call and Abraham leaves, a, a drought comes into the land, a famine comes into the land. And so Abraham and his wife, Sarai, they head to Egypt because that's the only place that they can actually live. And Abram, again, being told to obey and be a blessing to people around him, he goes into Egypt and is worried because his wife is beautiful. And so he's like, dog, Pharaoh, this isn't my wife. This is my sister. Yeah, you can have her. Go for it. Yet in the midst of that, God still continues to bless Abraham because Abraham actually leaves Egypt out of the famine with way more, with way more animals, way more money than when he actually entered. You see, he leaves, he leaves Egypt with so much property that him and Lot actually cannot live in the same area. They've kind of outgrown each other's boundaries. And so it's in the midst of this that they kind of divide the land, and Lot gets some of it, and Abram gets some of it. And this story progresses, and then Lot gets captured, and Abram's like, I need to go save my, my nephew Lot. And so he goes and saves Lot from the king of Salem, and he interacts with this priestly, kingly figure of Melchizedek. And that leads us to chapter 15. Because in the midst of this, in the midst of this amazing season of growth and this amazing season of prosperity, Abram's still asking the question, where's, where's my land going to be? Where's my offspring going to be? You see, the fact that Abram's living in a tent just emphasizes the, the nomadic life in which he lives. So we enter 15 with those two promises of offspring and land on the front of our mind. Yet we'll realize pretty quickly that in 15, in a sense, Abram takes a back seat in this story. And God takes center stage as we look at the God of the covenant. Chapter 15 is broken up into two distinct sections, looking at these two promises of offspring and land. And so 1 through 6 looks at offspring, and then 7 through 21 looks at the land piece. And they actually follow the exact same structure. You have that God reveals himself and makes a promise. And then Abraham responds and is like, ooh, God, are you actually going to do that? Questions God and kind of grumbles. And then each of these times, God confirms his promise. So in verse 1, God reveals himself and makes a promise. And he says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And God said, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Makes the promise and then we get Abram stepping in, complaining. And verse 2, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
Again, we're not really told how much time has passed between 12 and 15, but it's enough time has passed that Abraham's starting to get kind of a little tired. God, I'm getting old. I'm already 75 when you called me. When is, when is this child going to come? Yet in the midst of that, God responds with a confirmation. In verse 4, he says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said, This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God says, hey, if you can count the stars in the sky, you can count your kids. If you can't count the stars in the sky, that's how many kids you're going to have, so good luck trying to count. And we see in this moment that this is the first time that God actually says, hey, this, this man is righteous. Yet it's important to note that Abraham simply accepts the promises of God and then accepts the stipulations laid out in the relationship. And that is what God says is the obedience, that is, a right, that is righteousness. So again, Abraham's righteousness is not ascribed for his, his work for God. So his righteousness does not have to do with he is obedient to God, therefore he's righteous. But rather it has to do with his trust in God. We even see in Hebrews 11, in the hall of faithfulness, of those that are like the supreme faithful ones, we see that he is deemed faithful because he trusted in the Lord. And then we pick up and look at the land piece. And following the pattern, God reveals himself, and he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess, in verse 7. And then once again, Abram questions God. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? As you kind of see, doubt becomes this common theme. God's like, have you not seen all that I've done so far? You're still going to question and so God responds by making a covenant with Abram. He's ultimately saying, okay, if you want to for sure know that it's going to come to pass, I will show you through making a covenant. So picking him in verse 9, he being God said to him, bring me a heifer that's three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the bird in half. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, and I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And, when they, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kizzizites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God emphasizes his promise to Abraham through a covenant. 
In a sense, God is saying, okay, Abram, are you struggling to believe this? I will show you just how committed I am to making this happen. The term for covenant is, actually means to cut a covenant, which we see played out kind of through this gory imagery of animals literally cut in half and then laid so that you got all their blood and entrails and all that just kind of seeping into the ground. And in a normal covenant inauguration ceremony like this, both parties would walk through this gory mess. And ultimately saying and symbolizing that, okay, if, if I do not hold firm to my part of the covenant, may I be like these animals. May I be cursed. Yet we see here that this isn't what happens. But rather, God makes Abram fall asleep. And it is God alone who walks through the animals. It is God alone who walks through this inauguration ceremony. And we see him walking in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. And it's important note to realize that the Israelites would be receiving Genesis much later after the story has actually happened, even later than the Exodus. And if, so the Israelites are thinking, Okay, in the Exodus story, when God pulled us out of Egypt, this place that he said we would be for 400 years, he led us out, and he led us by a cloud during the day and by a flame in the sky at night. So again, as an Israelite, you're looking and you're reading this, and you're seeing this is God. This is God's presence walking through the ceremony. It's, it's easy to read a story like this, so only a few verses in the grand scheme of things and just kind of move on. I mean, I don't know how many times I've done that as I, I read through the Bible in a year and begin in Genesis and you read through 15 and just keep going. You're like, oh, it's kind of gory, it's kind of gross, but you move on. Yeah, I think it's important to actually sit in it for a moment and to actually think through what this means. Oh, there's, a, there's an author that, that wrote specifically about this. Um, and it's a, it's a longer quote, so just bear with me. I think it's amazing, though. It's going to be on the screen. Um, so Ray Vanderland said this specifically about this covenant. He said, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, along with a dove and a young pigeon, God said or told Abram. Then, when those animals had been sacrificed and laid out on both sides of their shed blood, God made a covenant. To do that, he walked barefoot in the form of a blazing torch through the path of blood between animals. Think of it. God Almighty walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that is, to say the least, unpleasant. Yet God, in all his power and majesty, expressed his love that personally. By participating in that traditional Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony, he made it unavoidably clear to the people of that time, place, and culture what he intended to do. I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying. And I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. Picturing God passing through the gory path between the carcasses of animals, imagining the blood splashing as he walked, helps us recognize the faithfulness of God's commitment. He was willing to express, in terms his chosen people could understand, that he would never fail to do what he promised. And he ultimately fulfilled his promise by giving his own life 
his own blood on the cross. This is what God did for Abraham. This is what God did for us. This reveals and teaches us that God will keep his promises by his own commitment to do so. God alone binds himself to the covenant. It's, it's in his faithfulness and his faithfulness alone in which this rests. I mean, God's ultimately saying, okay, if, if this covenant is broken, Abraham, for any reason, whether it be my own breaking, which isn't going to happen, or your breaking, which is realistically going to happen, I will pay the price. I will pay the price in blood. And so as we look at this, we can't help but look at the character of God, the God of the covenant. And we could look at many characteristics of God present in this, yet I want to hone in on one, the faithfulness of God, and really two things that we can pull away from it. One is that God is faithful despite our doubts. God is faithful despite our doubts. Again, we see that God commissions Abraham to go and be a blessing. Yet we kind of saw the immediate response to that is, okay, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and lie and say that she's my sister, not my wife. And instead of blessing Pharaoh, he actually diseases Pharaoh and his whole household. And then we'll actually see in this next chapter, in chapter 16, that Abraham, kind of doubting God in his timeline, sleeps with his wife's maidservant, Hagar, to try to produce a child that hopefully will be the child of promise. Though this story is not one to encourage doubt, it is one that shows as fallen humans, we will doubt. We will question God. I mean, we see Abraham was considered righteous by God and still had these moments of doubt. Yet we realize that in the midst of this, God is truly bigger than our doubts. God is faithful in the midst of our doubting. No knot in life is too tangled for God's undo. And no heart too broken that God cannot pick up the pieces and mend them back together to actually make them more beautiful than the original. We take heart in the fact that what God says will come to pass. And the fact that he's bigger than our doubts means we can actually take our doubts to God. We can express the areas in which we are lacking faith, the areas in which we are struggling, knowing that God hears them, but God's faithfulness does not waver based on how we respond. God's plans will never be thwarted. He's going to use every circumstance in our life for his glory, and we can cling to that promise. And secondly, we see that God's faithfulness is unilateral. In this covenant, God binds himself to the promises. His saving promise rests solely on his shoulders, not Abraham's obedience, and ultimately not in our obedience. I mean, we need to realize God chose Abraham, who was a pagan worshiper prior to interacting with God, to be the father of his people. God's faithfulness does not depend on us. 
See, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says these very words. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us and chase at this actually when we're on stage. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So when we fail, and it's not a matter of if, but when, God remains faithful. God holds on to his children. You see, that's ultimately why it is through grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved, that we can step into a relationship with God. It is the act of grace, it is the act of God's faithfulness that brings us into the fold. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if this sounds foreign to you, I want you to hear this, that the God of Abraham can be your God. And he wants you to be his child. In scripture, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He cares for you and he wants you to be his own. He wants this covenant that he made with Abraham, a covenant of grace to be extended to you. He holds on to you and never lets go. God is faithful to the end. And so we see that God alone will fulfill this covenant and keep his promises. But God also makes it clear that it is, it is through grace, through faith, that this establishment happens, this covenant happens. Yet at the same time, we see in 17 that God also calls him to obedience. Grace through faith, but still desires, longs for complete obedience from his people. And this truth is revealed in chapter 17 as we look at the sign of the covenant. So we know at this point that 24 years has gone by from when Abraham was called by God in chapter 12 to chapter 17. And Abraham is still waiting for this son with Sarai. Still waiting for the son and still waiting for the land. And we saw that Abraham takes matters into his own hands in chapter 17 and has sex with Hagar and ultimately Ishmael is born. Trying to just hold on to this hope. It says in chapter one, I mean in verse one, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. So in this verse, God reveals himself as God Almighty. He reveals himself as El Shaddai. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. These are like kind of, again, two commands he gives. And it's important to know with the, the statement of walk before me, anytime that, is, anytime that is used or that imagery is present, it really carries the meaning of that person being an emissary or an ambassador for God. God is saying, as you walk before me, you will walk before the nations. So if I want people to know what I am like, if I want people to know what it looks like to interact with the living God, look to the person that walks before me. Look to the person that is Abraham. And he tells him to be blameless, which in Hebrew, that word carries the connotation of complete, of entire, of in whole. It carries the connotation of righteousness. God is calling Abraham, Abraham to be morally blameless and impeccable. 
And if we're honest, we look at this story so far, and we're kind of like, well, Abraham has kind of failed in those categories already. Yet God is ultimately saying, it's, it's this obedience, this desire that I long for, for you to follow through. And he said, this is how you're going to show your obedience. This is how you're going to show that, that you are mine. It's through the act of circumcision. And in verses 3 through 14, God reiterates his promise to Abraham. And it's in this that God actually changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations. He is saying that an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his offspring will happen. And through this, a nation will come from you. Even a king or kings in plural will come from you. And the sign is circumcision. Whether it's your immediate offspring, those born into your household, or those bought and purchased into your household, circumcision will be the sign. It will set you apart from the rest of the nations. And he actually goes so far to say, if someone within our community is not willing to be circumcised, then they will be cut off from the covenant community. This is the sign of the covenant. To be part of that covenant, you have to be circumcised. And then God actually shifts his attention, still talking to Abraham about Sarah, and changes her name from Sarai to Sarah, and says, hey, you are going to have a child. I am going to bless you. What you thought of infertility is not that at all, but it's actually just my timing. As I bring to you Isaac, and even God faithful to Ishmael, faithful to this child that was born without God's ultimate desire and plan and, and how he was going to fulfill. And God says, I'm going to be faithful to Ishmael. And out of him, I'm going to make a great nation as well. And so let's pick up in verse 23 with the actual act of circumcision. Then Abraham took Ishmael's son and all those born in the house and bought with money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Once again, we see the obedience of Abraham. That God says, circumcise yourself and all the men with you. And Abraham does it. And we're talking at the ripe old age of 99. When they didn't have, you know, shots that would numb you, okay? And he just goes for it. Him and all of the men with him. It just shows his willingness to follow through and obey God's commands. But have you ever thought, and this probably isn't a thought that comes to your mind that often, like, why circumcision? of all the things that God could do to be like, this is going to be my set-apart people, why circumcision? You know, I mean, I think if we're thinking in today's context, we're like, why not just like a tattoo of a cross, you know, like on the wrist or like right here because that's the cool thing, you know? Like, what about one of those? And that can be like what differentiates us. Yet it's circumcision. And you see, there's an amazing and profound significance to why God decided that circumcision would be the sign that sets them apart. You see, Abraham and his descendants, and what becomes Israel, were not the first people to practice circumcision. Rather, their neighbors, the Egyptians, were also ones that practiced circumcision. And, and as God says in 15, it's ultimately going to be in Egypt 
that the Israelites spend 400 years as slaves. Yet for the Egyptians, circumcision was the rite of passage into the priesthood. So it wasn't every male in Egypt that was circumcised, but it was those that were becoming a priest, and then obviously the high priest, which was Pharaoh. So with circumcision came this kingly, priestly role. So therefore, when God tells Abraham and his household, hey, all the men from a child to 99 years old is going to be circumcised, he's saying that that nation is going to be set apart, that you as a nation step into the role of priest, that you are a holy nation. And God reiterates that language throughout the Old Testament of, of a nation of priests, a holy nation. We even see that in 1 Peter as well, that the New Testament church is told that as well. You see, it's not just the Levitical priests of Israel that were circumcised, but all. God's saying, my people are a holy nation. They are a kingdom of priests consecrated to me. What a powerful statement that is to the world. For through this act, the whole ancient world would know that the Israelites were different, that they were set apart. And for us today, we also step into that role. We, as followers of Jesus, are a community of priests, are a holy nation. <coughs> so you might feel inadequate. You might feel like you don't know enough that you lack value and significance. But to God, you are a priest. But to God, you are the one that are, is his image bearer to the world. The reality is, as a follower of Jesus, as a priest for Christ, people look at you and say, oh, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. The church makes God visible to the world. So what does that mean? It means we're called to proclaim God's excellencies to the world. We're the ones to go into the dark places and bring the light of the gospel. It means we're not to lose sight of who we are. As we walk on the campus of OSU, as we parent our kids, both in those good moments where you're so thankful that they're listening to you and those moments when they want nothing to do with you, it's in those moments that you walk in and interact with your coworkers that you are a priest. It's not an identity that you take off and put back on before you come to church on Sunday or before you go to community group, but it is something that is just embedded in you. So I urge you to talk about Jesus. I mean, I know that evangelism or sharing the gospel with people is one of the scariest things out there. So one of the things that every membership conversation we have, we want people to tell us the gospel because it's the very backbone. It's what we believe. Yet I think so often evangelism feels scary because we're not just talking about Jesus all the time with those that know Jesus even. So if evangelism feels scary, my, I, my call and urge is to talk about Jesus with those that you know are like-minded, 
The people sitting in these chairs next to you, talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about what you're learning, what's transforming you. And out of that, out of the abundance of that, you're just naturally going to be sharing more often with people. You see, we are priests. So we ought to live like it. And secondly, this is a, this is a topic we'll go more in depth on as we look at the new covenant in a few months. But it's also important to note that circumcision doesn't carry the same weight that it, does, that it did back then. We are getting circumcised or uncircumcised today, and it doesn't really matter. Yet God says that ultimately it's not the circumcision of the flesh, but it's the circumcision of the heart that matters. Paul actually says circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And there's a whole letter in the New Testament to the Galatians, that so much that letter is talking about the fact that as a Gentile, you do not have to be circumcised to be set apart, to be part of the family of God. Instead, we see in the New Testament a practice that is faith is not followed by circumcision, but faith is followed by baptism. At Pentecost, Peter even urges Christ's followers to repent and be baptized. So ultimately, it's a public declaration of the inward reality in the sense of the circumcision of your heart, of your faith in Christ Jesus. See, baptism is kind of like the passport that reveals that you are a citizen of God. And therefore, my, my urge is if, if you are a follower of Jesus and have not been baptized, please come talk to me. Come talk to one of us on staff because we would love to walk you through the sign of baptism and what that means and ultimately how you are making the public declaration that I am in the family of God. That we as a church recognize you as in that family. Your heart has been circumcised. Now do the act of that circumcision. And so as we get to the end of the story, we see a God of grace and a God of faith as he, as he pours out blessings on Abraham and his descendants. Remember, God promises Abraham that from his line will come a great nation. And from his line, kings will be born. And ultimately from his line, all nations, all peoples will be blessed. And God goes so far to commit himself through an unconditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant with Abraham. You see, there's a weightiness to this covenant, for at the moment the covenant was installed, the Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son Jesus. For God proclaimed that if this covenant were broken, he would be the one to bear the curse. He would be the one to have his blood spilled. And thousands of years later, we see those curses poured out on the shoulders of Jesus. We see those curses as nails are driven into his hands and feet and as a crown of thorns is placed on his head, as a spear is driven into his side. The perfect one, the blameless ambassador for God, was hung on a cross with a sign over his head proclaimed king of the Jews. 
And there Jesus died on the cross as king of the Jews. But we know that three days later he rose again. And he rose ultimately as king of the world, as a blessing to all nations. For it is through his life, death, and resurrection that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant become a full reality. Through Jesus Christ, the whole world is blessed. For it is through him and him alone that we come to God. And it is through him and him alone that we become a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And the beauty is we look to the end. We look when Christ returns and when a new heaven and a new earth is created. And and the image we get in Revelation is one of this. In chapter 7 of Revelation, it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the God of the covenant. This is the covenant that we, as followers of Jesus, get to step into. And we hold firm to those promises, knowing that the nations will be blessed, that at the name of Jesus, someday all nations will bow before God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful for your faithfulness. Lord, we are thankful for this story, a beautiful story, a story of grace, a story of hope, a story that we can cling to. God, I pray that this morning you raise us up, that we listen to you, respond to you in obedience, in faith. Lord God, we praise you that you are faithful to the end. When we are faithless, your faithfulness does not change. In your name, amen.